morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. My Buddhist name is Ilcho, and I'd like to welcome everybody, uh, particularly those who may be here for the first time. Anybody here for the first time? Oh, good many people. Welcome. Uh, our Sunday morning services usually follow this format. We have a 30-minute sitting. Uh, we do the refuges, and then we have a shorter sitting and a Dharma talk. Anyway, um, I would like to, first of all, uh, thank our founding uh, teacher, Reverend uh, Samu Sunam, and uh, our venerable Samu Sunam, and uh, our resident priest, uh, Reverend Sanha, who's coming back from a two-week uh, trip tomorrow, I believe, uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk. I'm a Dharma student here. And uh, in Zen, you know, we don't really do much in the way of visualization, but I'd like to take uh, just a few seconds of your time, basically, and ask you to uh, do a little mental imaging, uh, if you could, uh, because it has to do with uh, the talk I'm going to give. And uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could just maybe uh, close your eyes and try to come up with an image of someone you know very well and in as much detail, uh, vibrancy, stability that you can. Okay, so I'd, I'd like to ask how many people here, if you want, uh, can see a fairly clear image of uh, this person when they, they close their eyes. Yeah, so quite a number. And uh, perhaps more importantly, how many people can't really get a clear image of uh, a person? Uh, anyway, you think this is kind of silly, but uh, uh, the kind of gist of my talk came from a friend who called who was quite distressed and uh, he was distressed because basically he discovered, and I think it was YouTube actually, <laughs> uh, that there's this condition uh, called aphantasia. And aphantasia is the inability to come up with a vivid mental image. A mental image being uh, an image of something that isn't actually present. Uh, but to come up with it clearly, stably, with uh, vividness. And this is done uh, at a prestigious um, uh, university, uh, University of Exeter, and the head of this cognitive uh, psychological department, Adam Zeman, he determined uh, statistically that only 2% of the population cannot generate clear mental images of someone. Not a fleeting image, but can actually see them. And uh, so this guy, uh, Don, he was asking his friends and his wife and his son, you know, he can't see anything, you know? 
And, uh, and he asked them all, and they could all see, you know, they could say, yeah, you know, and he'd phone up a friend, I, Don, I can see you like you're in the room right now. And it was getting him a little bit upset. I mean, like, is there something deficient with him? Like, everybody else seems to be able to see these images. And so he asked me, and I said, no, I can't see anything. You know, I, I, I can't see, I, you get a feeling maybe, but I can't hold a clear image of somebody uh, if I'm asked to, or if I'm on the phone, or if I'm, you know. And I was the first person he came across who said no. And, uh, and he couldn't either. Now, I think we just demonstrated in here that actually it's, it's more than 2% of the population that really can't generate clear, stable images. Um, and so what? I mean, but, you know, obviously creating images or having images come up is probably not a, uh, you know, an important survival um, attribute of our brains. However, you know, things like mindfulness have been studied to death. I mean, like thousands of studies. No one has ever studied, up until 2006, uh, whether or not people actually have mental images or not. In 1880, somebody wrote a paper about it, and it was another hundred and some odd years before somebody else thought, well, you know, I wonder if people can see mental images. Uh, and apparently, they can. You know? So, you wonder what this has to do with Buddhism, or practice, or anything else, beyond just the curiosity uh, level. And also, I mean, it is kind of important. I mean, do, do people see things in your interior life a lot differently than I would? I mean, I can only speak for myself in, in terms of my own inner environment. And I do feel a bit diminished if, yeah, you know, uh, other people are, are seeing beautiful, vivid kind of pictures when I'm not. And it goes to do with practice as well. Now, Zen, we don't do visualizations as far as this group goes, uh, with the maybe single exception of when you're settling down into your practice, uh, Sunna mentions keep your meditation light. Uh, you know, you get your posture ready, your, your, your mudra, uh, in meditation, your back is straight, your eyes are down, uh, your, your tongue is at the back of your teeth, and then you keep your meditation light. And yeah, you get a sort of sense, two or three feet in front of you, that it's maybe a little bit more light sometimes. But Zen doesn't do visualization. Uh, if you go to yoga groups, if you go to workshops, if you go, particularly the Tibetan uh, Buddhist uh, centers, you better be able to visualize some stuff, you know. I mean, you have guided visualizations, and, and actually people are seeing what they're being guided to do, apparently. So I'm there, and I'm wondering, like, like yeah, what's going on? Because I don't. I mean, it's, I can kind of conceptually figure it out. <laughs> so what uh, this has to do with practice um, well, first of all, Zen and uh, the Mahayana schools generally and the Pali Canon rely a lot more on 
sound and hearing. Uh, all our practice here, I mentioned counting your breath back from five to zero, or you might be uh, given Hana practice or uh, uh, a sound practice, or as we all know, you might be given a koan or in the Korean tradition of Hwadu, a question, but it's still sort of a sound practice. You're not intellectually trying to figure out the meaning of that question. It's just this constant questioning over and over and over again. But it's still sound. And, uh, you know, the, the, well, in the old days of Buddhism, when Buddhism started up uh, 2,500 years ago, uh, the monks and the nuns were given quite often a practice called kasina practice. And the kasina practice is once a, 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 a monk or a nun uh, were kind of, you know, observed for a bit and considered to be ethically uh, uh, sincere in their practice, they would be given, well, there are traditionally 10 kasinas. And uh, four of them, uh, I believe, are colors. There's the earth casina, which is kind of a mud color, and I forget the other colors, blue. They're, they're basically primaries. And there would be a cloth or a piece of paper with this color on it. The monk would have to stare at this color for weeks, or for however long it took before uh, and not that inexplicably, the image finally could be viewed without it being there. And of course, if you're going to stare at a color blue for eight hours a day, you probably can realize at some point you're going to see the blue without it having to be there. But that was a very important step in practice because once one could do that, one had kind of become able to image this, and it was called access consciousness, and it gave the, the practitioner the ability to enter deeper states of samadhi, or they call them the jhanas. Uh, quite often it would be accompanied when one was on the verge of a deep samadhi, a namita, or a sign, or a, a little flash of lightning, or a firefly, or whatever. So these were kind of visual imaging, but it, it was not really these very complex uh, practices in Tibetan Buddhism where one will visualize in a very stable and clear way very f minute details of a, uh, a bodhisattva or a Buddha uh, refuge tree, what have you, and be able to hold that and bring it up. And, I mean, I can't visualize anything. And here we are, you know, like, visualizing these incredibly complex images uh, with all these different um, uh, bodhisattvas wearing different things with different headdresses and jewels and what have you. Um, I kind of, you know, never thought of it much. I've attended uh, retreats in, in Tibetan Buddhism. I went on a, a nine-day retreat once with the Friends of the Heart and uh, yeah, there was a lot of this stuff. And I, I told the teacher, Catherine Rathburn, I said, yeah, I can't. I'm a lousy visualizer. I kind of get the general gist of things. 
And she said, she is too. <laughs> you know, she can't really see. I mean, you just get the sense of it. So anyway, I, I don't think it's something that people have to worry about. I mean, if you were, again, I've, I've gone on Yoga Nidra where the whole thing is just visualization and visualization. I usually fall asleep, but that's what it's called, you know, yogic sleep, basically. And uh, so I guess to kind of get more to, uh, and, and generally in the Mahayana, you know, if one were to say go to a phone book and look up all the Buddhist organizations in Toronto, one would find there are some Zen places, there are some Tibetan places, most of them are pure land, ethnic pure land temples. Uh, and again, their practice is recitation. It's a bit too devotional, I think, for most Westerners. Uh, but reciting Amitabha Buddha or whatever over and over and over again and these long sutras. And again, it's primarily sound practice. So maybe that gives me the opportunity to kind of shift a little bit and you know, like, there's imaging, but like, what is it about sound practice? What is it, what are we trying to do when we're counting our breath? You may think that's uh, like practice 101, but that's my practice actually. And I've been coming here for a little while. Um, I count my breath. You know, it's, it's Korean, hana tool set net tezut, but it's one, two, three, four, five, basically. Um, and, Sound practice is basically, to my, to my own opinion, trying to keep that inner voice that we all have at bay. You know, that inner, inner voice that we all carry around. And I mean, I kind of jump from images to voices, but everybody's got it. You know, when you sit down and practice, you're going to hear it. Like, this is boring, this is stupid, this is a waste of time better things to do, when are they going to do something, you know, on and on and on, this voice. And this voice is very strange, like it's coming from you, and you're listening to it, like who's saying it, and who's hearing it, you know. And um, it's one of these things you just take for granted. There's always this background noise, you don't usually notice it. But it's incessant. And I can, again, only speak for myself. Uh, and you know, but I'm pretty sure it applies to everybody that I've ever spoken to about practice, that when you actually sit and meditate, that voice, or those thoughts, pretty much the same thing, become pretty loud, you know, and they're not the greatest thing in the world. You don't particularly want to identify with this voice. Uh, Michael Singer was saying, it's like you have an inner roommate and this inner roommate is, is not very, you know, negative, repetitive, uh, you know, a uh, little insane, uh, trivial, and, you know, it's not somebody you really want to hang around with, and yet it's inside of you all the time. And it's the, you are not this voice, you know. Like, some people may be wondering, what am I talking when you, you try to develop a practice, this voice is really a problem. And maybe you're the person who hears the voice, but you're not the voice itself. You're not this inner roommate who, 
you know, if it were an actual person around, you wouldn't want to be around at all, basically. Always negative, always coming up with uh, rationalizations, things like that. You know, thoughts are not exactly the crown of creation. It's, it's the witness, it's the essence, it's, it's the person who's hearing, or the person who's seeing, uh, that is really the core. And this sort of idea of, of thoughts and, and the inner voice being um, the chief obstacle is somewhat offset by the fact when you have a practice given to you, you know, you can, well, you, you can't really do both. You know, if, if you're doing counting your breath, sure, it's a gimmick, but you know, it, you're, you're, you're have, you're, your mind has something to latch onto and work with. Uh, you could do a mantra or whatever, but initially you kind of need something to offset the voice. And, um, you know, the counting the breath, you know, eventually everything quiets down and, you know, the voice quiets down and particularly on a silent retreat, everything becomes very peaceful, silent, light, and, uh, you know, you start to really feel that you're there, you're home. And uh, to my mind, you know, that's recognition of that, just simple recognition that we all carry around this kind of incessant chatter and it's not who we are, is really the, the most important point one could make or, or could acknowledge in the uh, beginning of one's spiritual practice. And sure, you know, if you can visualize, it's the same sort of thing. You're giving your mind something else to do. Uh, when we practice here on our retreats, it's pretty stripped down if it's a non-instructional retreat. We have 30-minute sittings, and then we break, and a 30-minute sitting and walking meditation. Eventually, your inner voice just gets tired because, you know, it's got nothing to do. Um, Eckhart Tolle, I've mentioned this before, uh, and he puts it very, very nicely. He says, basically, the voice particularly goes into uh, overdrive when you are trying to meditate because it has no control of you. Uh, meditation, uh, if you're really in the present moment, gives thoughts nothing to chew on. Thoughts need to have something that's happened in the past and so might happen in the future, even if it was five minutes ago, to actually construct you know, coherent uh, narratives about. And when you're actually in the present moment, your thoughts get very, or this voice gets very upset because now what's it going to do? It's not in charge anymore. It's out of a job. You know, it, you're really there. And uh, so people have mentioned, and I can say from my own experience, that when you actually try to start a practice, it's very difficult uh, by oneself because you sit down, you light the candles, the incense is great for five minutes, and then you know what happens. Uh, and when you're with a group, yeah, you sit down, you can't get up and leave. You know, well, you can, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, you know, you're, you're sort of sit and you vow, at least for 30 minutes, I'm going to stay here and be here. And, uh, 
And then actually after a while, you start to find results. You know, you find some balance. And uh, anyway, and, and again, my first retreat here uh, was absolutely horrific because all I could think about was how soon it was going to end and when my headache was going to end and won't they turn up the heat in the place and one thing after the other and every possible criticism I could think of just kept going and going. I was sitting too close to the other people. My cushion wasn't soft enough. Uh, you know, nobody seemed to be in a good mood. Nobody was saying anything. Uh, Sunum was screaming during interviews. You know, like it, it was like I said to myself, that's it. When I leave this place, never coming back. And, uh, and the next morning I woke up and I felt better than I had in years. You know, physically, mentally uh, empowered. Totally unexpected. Um, but anyway, I think I've said enough. Thank you. <laughs>